listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I have been a huge fan of Stevie Wonder for decades. I love Stevie Wonder. I have his entire catalog of albums. Yes, every single one. I have followed his career over the years. I have traced the the pathways of his influence in modern artists. And I even got to see Stevie Wonder perform his very best album ever that he made live here in D.C. And that very best album is Songs in the Key of Life. (laughs) Got to see that live. (laughs) But my sense of appreciation and love for Stevie Wonder's music really began in high school. Because just growing up in the family that I grew up in, my dad had seven brothers and sisters. So I had seven aunts and uncles and everyone was always just across the street at my grandparents' house, always listening to music, partying, frying fish, chicken. It was always a party. I couldn't help but grow up hearing the message that Stevie Wonder was an amazing artist. But the fact was, I just didn't know his work, and I had no idea where to begin when I wanted to start listening to Stevie Wonder for myself. And so when that day came, and I decided I wanted to listen to Stevie Wonder for myself, I, I reached out to one of my uncles, who was a real music lover, to ask him for some advice. And he said to me, all right, all right, you're going to start listening to some real music, right? (laughs) He said, what you need to do is you need to go ahead and get Stevie Wonder's greatest hits. So I got my hands on a copy of Stevie Wonder's greatest hits. My uncle was happy to introduce me to Stevie Wonder's music. So this was my starting point. I began with Stevie Wonder's greatest hits. Now, here's the deal. We're all familiar with the concept of a greatest hits album, right? Most major artists have a greatest hits album. And here's the deal. These are simply compilations of all of their music from all of their records that help you to get the essence of who that artist is and to appreciate their creativity. It's not meant to diminish the other works that they have created, the other things that they have done. It's meant to give you an entry, an on-ramp that will lead you to the other works that that artist has done so that you can appreciate that artist and explore the rest of their work. Many of our neighbors have heard Christians talk about how amazing the Lord is but they just don't know his work and have no idea where to begin. And if these neighbors were to ask the average Christian in America, they probably wouldn't get much help. Gauging by the statistics on widespread biblical illiteracy, interpretive confusion, and theological ignorance, which is just another way of saying that we are witnessing a meaningful decline in Christian mission in America because American Christians are not familiar with the catalog of the Lord's work. And they don't seem very happy to introduce him 
to others. So this fall, we are going to begin to work through a series called Salvation's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. And this is Volume 1, all right? And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to dig into the, the, a compilation of some of the most important texts on salvation in the Old Testament scriptures that lead us to what God has done in Jesus Christ and which form our understanding of Christian spirituality. That's what we're out to do this fall. We want to anchor our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus, and we want to think through the various ways that this shapes Christian spirituality. And my hope, very much in line with the writer of Hebrews, my hope is that our community will pay much closer attention to our great salvation and will avoid drifting away from Christ and that we will gain a growing appreciation for the Lord's work and that we will be happy to introduce others to him. So today, we begin with the theme of creation in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And we're going to take a look at this text through two points. We're going to see how it started and how it's going, okay? Y'all know your pastor's hip with the meme culture. I know what's up. I know what's up. We're going to talk about how it started and how it's going. So let's look at this first point, how it started. Now, the first thing you need to understand about Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is that they are a goldmine of biblical themes and trajectories that shape the entire story that develops in the rest of Scripture. The interpretation of significant portions of Scripture are deeply influenced by your grip on the teaching of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But what can we see here that prepares us for what God has done in Christ and how that might shape our spirituality? What I want to do is I want to run through some of the macro themes that we see playing out in, in this text for today. And I want to develop these and show you the trajectory of these important themes. And this is not just an attempt to fill in for a lack of biblical literacy. This is a plea for our community to understand the far-reaching implications of what God has done in this beginning and how that beginning develops into a future for us. In other words, it's extremely relevant for the lives that we live right now, the battles that we're facing right now, and the direction that we need for today is here. So let's start to look at some of these things. What do we see in this text? First thing I want to point out to you is we see creation by the word of God. Creation by the word of God. Scholars will say creation by verbal fiat. Okay? Genesis 1 says that creation was made by the word of God, which would have been an absolutely astounding statement in the surrounding culture of the time. The surrounding culture of the time was called the ancient Near East. And that was the culture in which Israel was situated during these early days. And in that surrounding culture, the different peoples of that culture 
had different cosmologies, different understandings or of origin stories of how the world began and what were people and what was the purpose of human life and how were people to discharge their religious duties. They were in the midst of competing stories about the creation of the world and its existence. And in a lot of these ancient Near Eastern stories, you had these scenes in which there were different gods. There was a pantheon of gods, right? Many gods. And the way that creation happened is that those gods would get into battle, okay? And in some of these stories... The God who was defeated, their body was cut up in order to make the creation. In others of these ancient Near Eastern stories, there were these these primordial monsters that were monsters of chaos. And some ancient Near Eastern God would subdue that monster of chaos in order to bring order. That was how the people of the time in the ancient Near East thought about the origins of the world. However... This creation story in Genesis contains no pantheon of competing deities. It contains no battle. God simply speaks and creation appears. The pattern with each day of creation begins with Vayomer Elohim and God said. Did you notice how often it was repeated? And then creation is, is, is shaped And God said, God simply speaks. We see the creative power and possibility of God's word. We're going somewhere. Next thing, what we see is that God forms and fills in creation. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void, which was a way of saying that the earth was a chaotic wasteland. Now we have a resident Hebrew scholar, an ancient Near Eastern scholar. We got big Paul back there. Paul, give a wave. If you want to understand more about these ancient Near Eastern backgrounds or some of the Hebrew going on behind the scenes here, go ask Paul about Tohu Vavohu, okay? Just say, Paul, tell me about Tohu Vavohu. That's formless and void, right? The, The world was described here as a wasteland, okay? It's a wasteland of chaos. And the rest of the creation narrative, check it out, shows us how God brings order to the chaos. He speaks over formlessness, and it is formed. He speaks over emptiness, and it is filled with beauty and goodness. And what we notice is that one of the ways that God forms the world is by separating and gathering. You notice that? There is separating and gathering in the forming of the creation. Next thing, what we notice, we notice the Spirit of God is present, okay? In the work of creation, God does not remain distant from his creation. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters like a mother bird who has given birth and will care for and raise her chicks to maturity. God does not rule his creation from afar. In terms of biblical theology, we see God reigning in a very personal and highly relational way. God speaks not only to command, but also to express his involvement 
with creation. Spirit of God present. Next name, we see light in darkness. We are told that darkness was over the face of the deep. The picture here is bleak and foreboding. But then God said, let there be light. And the darkness was scattered by the light. And God saw that the light was good. We see light in the darkness. We're going somewhere, y'all. Hang in. Next thing we see, image of God. Now, this creation narrative is actually building to the climactic moment where humanity is created as the image of God. And this was a countercultural expression of human dignity at the time. Because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, only the king was considered to be the image of God. But in this text, dignity is democratized. Every single solitary human being bears dignity because every human being is made as the image of God. All this language of image is important as well. Because the word for image here, the Hebrew word selim, if you actually look at the way that this word is used in the rest of Hebrew Bible, you notice that there are two major contexts in which that word is used. The first context in which it was used, selim was used to speak of the images that idolaters made to represent various gods. If you made an idol as a representation of your God, that idol was a selim. That's the first way it's used. The second way it's used is when a king conquered a region and they extended their kingdom, they would often erect a statue of themselves in that newly conquered land in order to show everyone just who it was who ruled that place. The king would build a selim, of himself. We see that humanity being created as the image of God was created to be a representation of God himself. Image bearers were be were to be a reminder to one another of the king who rules the place. Image of God. The next theme, blessed to be fruitful and to multiply. Now listen, though we have turned the language of blessing into something trite these days, ooh, girl, I got a parking spot. It was a blessing. That's, that's making blessing into something trite. Okay? Though we have turned the language of blessing into something trite in our day, blessing was no trivial or insignificant, insignificant thing in the book of Genesis or for the, for the people of the time. Blessing was covenantal language. Language describing the goodness, the abundance, and the vitality that comes on account of God's commitment. That's what blessing is describing. It's covenantal. This, it's all the overwhelming goodness and abundance and vitality that comes because of God's commitment. And we see God blesses the creation to be fruitful and to multiply. So it shows God's commitment to his creation. But then God blesses humanity 
to be fruitful and to multiply. God expresses his commitment to humanity, to his image bearers. And this fruitful and multiply piece, this is talking about procreation. Because think about it. Here's the idea. If each if image bearers represent the God who rules, if they, they're representatives, what God wants is a multiplication of image bearers to spread over the earth so that it's known all around the earth who reigns so that he has representation all around the earth. That is why Israel took children so seriously. That's why they understood the covenantal promises being made to their children. That's why it was they would never be caught dead complaining about children being a hindrance to their career or children getting in the way. They were absolutely blown away by the goodness of children. And kids, I want you to hear me say that. That's what God thinks about you. Mommy and daddy, they will fail and they will sin against you and make you think other things. The Whitfield children... I love you. I repent for all the ways I have failed to get you to feel the way that God feels about you. We all parents need repentance. And guess what? If you're not a parent, you need repentance too. Because in as much as you have been passive in communicating this message to the children of this community, you share in our guilt. We must do much better by the children of our community. But in this context, children were a blessing and there were so many reasons why, but one of the chief ones was that understanding of image-bearing, representing God, and showing his rule and reign around the world. Next theme, dominion. God gives humanity responsibility for environmental stewardship and caretaking. Notice that this is not a dominion over other image-bearers. Nor is it presented as an exploitative relationship to creation. Humanity's dominion is intended to result in the flourishing of creation, not the destruction of creation. We're going to get into that in the trajectory. Next theme, rest. Last but certainly not least is the theme of rest in the creation narrative. God establishes a pattern of working six days and then resting on the seventh day. And the intention is that this will become a pattern for his people, for humanity. And a particular highlight is placed on the seventh day when the text says that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, remember everything we said about blessing. It's the goodness, the abundance, and the flourishing because God is committed. God expresses that kind of relationship to the Sabbath. In other words, God set this weekly rhythm with boundaries in order to show his people that he would bring goodness, abundance, and vitality in the process of their work, and he would bring goodness, abundance, and vitality in the absence of their work. That's important. That's important. We're going we're gonna to go in a trajectory. Also notice, there's work before the fall. I just want to say that. Okay. <laughs> lest you treat your job like the curse. There was work, but work was not freighted with all of the load that it's freighted with today. 
Anyway, these themes give us a sense of how it started with creation. But we need to follow the trajectories forward to understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and to see how this shapes our spirituality. And that brings us to our second point, how it's going. Now, here's the deal. I want you to track with me because I'm trying to to make some connections for you. I'm trying to connect dots for you. I'm trying to fill out the picture. In other words, if someone talks to a member of Grace Mosaic and they ask you to speak on your God, I want you to be able to talk for more than three minutes. I want you to say, look, look, you tell me when to stop. Because I can go on and on about who he is and what he has done, not just for me, but in the world. I can speak on his many excellencies. I can detail his glories. I can tell you how convincing his plans for the world are. I can tell you the beauties and the glories of his name. I want you to be able to go hard in the paint on your God. Let's make some of these connections. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see the creation theme, right? Brought forward. In Galatians 6, Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the church as a new humanity. And he issues the call for us to Put on the new humanity, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you hear the themes echoing? Do you hear them? In Colossians 3, Paul tells us to put on the new humanity, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In the book of Revelation, through the entire book, we see God's final purpose revealed, and it is framed in the language and in the themes of a new creation. It's, the future is a garden city. It's not static. It grows, but it, remain, it, it maintains its original integrity. It's framed in new creation kind of language, the themes of creation. And all of this is to say that God's work and God's plans in the first creation carry through to fill out our understanding of the new creation. What is God doing in your life what is God trying to make of you? What, not just as an individual. What is God trying to do with us, among us, through us? What are his plans? How should this shape our outlook? How should this give us a framework for living in the world? It's here in this theme of creation. This text is one of salvation's greatest hits because it is often used to describe what God has done in Christ. Do you want to understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done? Is that a question mark over your head right now? Do you struggle to understand why Christians are like they are? Why we are so stuck on the exclusivity of Christ Jesus as the only hope for salvation? Why are we there? This is going to start to give you a window into that, and I'm glad you're asking those questions, but you need to know that we have answers. Think about it. Begin with the first theme. The new creation by the word of God. Just as the first creation was accomplished through the word of God, so is the new creation. Now, our neighbors are no less committed to a pantheon of gods which they believe make the world and hold it together. Money, 
sex, fame, power, and reputation may appear to create and sustain life. But they do not. They do not. The testimony of the church is that your life really begins with encountering, receiving, and living in accord with the word of God. And that's why Christians stress the importance of the scriptures, of the Bible. It's not in the mode of brute rule following or trying to appease an angry God. That's not why we are so serious about the scriptures. No, no. The reason why we're so serious about the scriptures is because we understand and believe that it's through the word of God that new creation unfolds, emerges, and flourishes. Our commitment to the word is about seeing flourishing around us. Because it's only through the word of God that new creation dawns. But the word of God takes on an even greater significance when John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. John tells us that all things were made by this word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who is the agent of creation. He was there in the beginning. We believe that it's through this word, the word made flesh, that we in the new creation flourish, are made whole, and are restored. The new creation springs into life through Jesus Christ, the living word. And I want to ask you something. Aren't you glad that God said, let there be forgiveness, and there was forgiveness? Aren't you glad that he said, let there be atonement, and there was atonement? Aren't you glad that he said, let there be love and peace and joy and hope, and it was? This is the word that he speaks in the new creation. These are the whispers that you are to hear from the word as his new creation, as his new people. We can see the creative power and possibility of God's word. But God, in the new creation, God forms and fills. When our lives were without form and void, when our lives were a chaotic wasteland of dysfunction and brokenness, God brought order to the chaos. He spoke over our formlessness and formed us. He spoke over our emptiness and filled us with his spirit with beauty and goodness and truth. He continues to form and fill us to this day by separating us from the works of evil and gathering us together as a new community. We must also recognize that in the new creation, the Spirit of God is present. In the work of the new creation... God does not remain distant from us. The Spirit of God does not just hover over the new creation. He actually dwells within us. He has taken up residence with us. The scriptures say that we are the new tabernacle as God's people. We are his temple. We are his dwelling place. And it shows us a God who cares to be intimate with us. 
to be relationally connected to us. And that is to mark the way that we live together in love. That is to mark the way that we view one another. This highly relational way. We see light in the darkness in the new creation. When we lived in the darkness of evil and sin, when life was bleak and foreboding, then God said, let there be light. And the darkness of our hearts was scattered by the light of Christ. The apostle Peter put it like this. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, here it is, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Aren't you glad to be pulled out of darkness today? It is good news that we can walk in the light. So, but, but it's not just a, a walking in the light. I, I want to borrow the idea of C.S. Lewis. We believe in Christianity as we believe that the sun has risen. Not only because we see it, but because by it we see everything else. We can now see our neighbors as people to care for rather than, pe than people to compete with. We can see our neighbors in their waywardness and their errors and have compassion and feel identification with them because we know what it's like to be failures and sinners. But we also have an opportunity to show them love in their sins and in their errors and in their failures because we know what it's like to be loved in our sin and in our error and in our failures. Do you realize that the light is just an image for the way that God has completely illumined your life with his truth? He has illuminated your life with his love. He has illuminated your life with his goodness. Everywhere you look, it's like you can't walk five feet without looking over your shoulder and seeing grace and mercy following you all the days of your life. No matter where you live, no matter where you go, no matter what you got going on, no matter how you're struggling or suffering, goodness and mercy are tracking you because God has shown his light. In your life, you're no longer in darkness. And the message of Scripture is don't go back there. Don't go back to the darkness. It's beautiful. Image of God. The entire story of Scripture is building to the time where a new humanity is recreated in the image and likeness of Christ. Romans 8 tells us that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Which is to say that in our renewal, in our transformation, in our transformed life, we represent the Lord and his many excellencies through our spirit-filled life together. Through the way that we live life together in order to show people who it is that rules. That's, that's the calling. It's not just, now listen, it's not morality because if you mess up, God's going to get you. Do you see the scope of it? Why do we want to live upright, moral, just, ethical lives? 
because it's to represent him rightly and fairly and truly as best we can as fallen people, but also to show people how the reign of God takes shape in a community, among a people, and to see the beauty that comes from his reign, the goodness, the mutual love and concern. Not because the optics make me look good, virtue signaling, like we see all over the place, like we see corporations and public figures trying to do on social media. We get the sense that many of them don't really care about the things they say they care about. But the order of the day is you got to make a statement to look good, whether you care about it or not. But this, isn't, this text isn't about you looking good without actually being good. God intends to make you good, to restore your goodness, to push back the darkness in your heart so that you more faithfully represent him and more truly show what his reign looks like on the earth. Image of God, blessed to be fruitful and to multiply. In union with Christ, we are blessed Why is it Jesus only? Why does Jesus matter so much? Because it's only in union with him that we can stand before God, beloved and accepted. Do you know that God does not view you in abstraction from Jesus? He did not set his love on you in abstraction from Jesus. We were chosen in Christ. We were accepted in Christ. We are beloved in Christ. And so that everything that is true of him in relationship to the Father is true of us. You are as loved by the Father as Jesus is because you are united to him. You are as accepted as Jesus is. God delights in you like he delights in his son. He is good to you like he's good to his son. He is faithful to you like he's faithful to his son and ever has been and ever will be. You are not abstracted from Christ in the way that God views you. Do you realize how that changes everything? When you feel anxious about screwing up, when you're feeling pressured by school or by your job or whatever, or or people in your life lay high expectations on you and they threaten you with rejection and their wrath... You are free from that because the only one who matters really and truly is smiling on you. That's that's why those simple songs aren't just simple songs. God has smiled on me. He has set me free. Let me tell you that God has smiled on me he has set me free what does it mean to you that God smiles on you that there will never be a moment that he is not completely delighted in you because you are in union with Christ you can be down and out and broken and a screw up the father smiles on you You can flop at the job and you can mess things up and you can wound people in your community. Do you see the difference that Jesus made? Who else is going to do that for you? All the other competing deities that you want to pursue can never do for you what Jesus has done for you. Money can't do it. Power can't do it. We see what money does to people and we see what power does to people. 
fame, reputation, when you ascend to those heights, then you live in fear of falling from those heights. None of this stuff can do for you what Jesus can do for you. That's why we boast in his many excellencies. That's why we say there's no one like him. That's why we say there's only one way because of who Jesus is, his greatness. We want you to understand and grasp that greatness. Blessed, we are blessed in union with Christ. It is in the new covenant that we receive goodness, abundance, and vitality through union with Christ. And in Christ, God gives his new humanity his benediction, his good word of blessing, and then he calls us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this not only takes place through actual procreation, married people, and raising our children in the grace and knowledge of the Lord rather than being slack at it. Can I tell you, just fall forward, family. Parents, we're all falling forward. None of us have figured this thing out. Our kids are giving us a run because they're fearfully and wonderfully made and they have awesome questions that they're asking and they're processing through things just like we did when we were their age and they, they're trying to figure out how to make decisions and grow up and a healthy sense of independence. There's all kind of knotted, tangled issues that we're all, but let's just fall forward in raising them to know the Lord. If they have hard questions you don't know how to answer, it's okay. Engaging them in the conversation really matters. The, the most important thing that you have to give to your kids is yourself. It's not your information. You're part of a community. That information can be gotten, but don't withdraw because you lack the information. Be present. We are responsible to be, for being fruitful and multiplying, not just in procreation, in the raising of children, but also in evangelism and mission. That's where this text is going. You, you got to understand that. In, in evangelism and mission, to cover the earth with the glory of the Lord. We want to bear witness to our neighbors and see them adopted into God's family by faith in Christ. This is where the text leads us. Dominion. Though it is still our responsibility for environmental stewardship and caretaking. By the way, that's not a progressive issue. That's a biblical issue. I just wanted to say that, okay? The scriptures always cut across your politic. You just need to expect it. If scripture's not cutting across your politic, you're an idolater. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to jam you up. But like we said before, these hands are rated E for everybody, okay? <laughs> Ashley. You got to receive it, right? The scriptures have a category of rebuke. The scriptures have a category of sharp, pointed correction. And it's not from a place of self-righteousness. I have received that sharp correction from the Lord's hand as recently as this week. You are not alone. Where all your pastoral care is in the boat with you, right? We all need this sharp correction, but it's for the sake of saving our lives. And, it, it, and, and refusing to give the sharp words again is like the surgeon recoiling from putting the scalpel to cut the skin to do this life-saving operation. Oh, I don't want to hurt them. Uh, no, no, we need that cut. Okay? It's still our responsibility for environmental stewardship and caretaking. But there's an additional sphere where dominion is to be exercised. And that is in the domain of our battle with sin and evil. 
A significant theme of the fall in Genesis 3, you have to understand, is that Adam failed to exercise dominion over the serpent, and he brought the world into ruin and curse. Well, this is what Paul is picking up in Romans chapter 6 when he says, For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin has no dominion over you that you do not give it. If you look at pornography, you gave sin dominion. You did not take dominion over the sin in your heart. You are no longer a slave of sin. Anytime you sin, you go willingly. And what we need prayer for is a reshaping of our will. (laughs) Augustine said, Lord, grant what you command and command what you will. He said, give me what I need, and then tell me to go off, and I'm going to do it, right? Dominion over sin. We ex- but when we exercise dominion over sin in our own hearts, when we resist the impulse to exploit the world around us, remember, dominion not over other people, not controlling other people. When we resist those impulses, when we exercise dominion rightly, it results in the flourishing of our lives, our relationships, and the rest of creation, When we exercise dominion rightly, rest, rest. One of the most welcomed and beautiful statements that ever came from the mouth of the Lord Jesus was when he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus came announcing rest because this is precisely what he brings in the new creation. We can rest from our pretending and performing. We can rest from our perfectionism and people-pleasing. We can rest from our busyness and our frantic pace and our workaholism because Jesus has already freely given us all of the things that we're trying to get through our hustle. He's already given it to us. He has given us his love and acceptance. He has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. He has given us matchless status as royal children. You don't need to seek status. He has made us secure in a way that ADT, no guard dog, no insurance company could give you. And when we embrace healthy rhythms of work and rest that belong to us in union with Christ, he will bring goodness and vitality and abundance in the process of our work, and he will bring goodness, abundance, and vitality in the absence of your work. A failure to rest is plain old unbelief. So pray, I believe but help my unbelief. We all know that struggle and that tension, right? But rest is not a reward for the work that you do. It is a kind gift of the Father, purely of grace, because he wants to form you in faith. And not only does God give you rest in this life, but the writer of Hebrews tells us that there remains a rest, a greater rest. Joshua couldn't bring God's people into that rest, in the promised land, but he tells you of a greater Joshua, Jesus, 
who brings us, who will bring us into full rest. That will be glory. Glory will be rest. Now, here are some themes from the story of creation and their trajectories. But let me get into some ways that I think this hits the ground. First, these themes give strength to our hope. These themes give strength to our hope. When we see chaos, when life looks like a wasteland out there, he is the God who speaks. He's the God who speaks. And we're not polishing the brass on the Titanic, as some Christian outlooks believe. That it's a waste of time to do good out there. That's why everything is reduced to evangelism. Because the creation does not matter. They don't have a cosmic view of what God is doing in the world. Everything is reduced to saving souls. The Bible doesn't reduce everything to saving souls. Creation gives us a cosmic scope. And new creation tells us the scope of God's redeeming work. And so it all matters. It all matters. And it gives strength to our hope. We're not just polishing the brass on a Titanic. When we do what the, what the Lord calls us to do, we are anticipating the new creation, which has its own evangelistic power. Consider how you might be a mouthpiece for his creative word to go out into the chaos to bring order. God's word is powerful, y'all. And that also means that you need to prioritize putting yourself under the word of God. You know, like the work that Joel and Ashley do with, with the Daily Prayer Project? Like, like one of the purposes of that project is to put you under a broad diet, a healthy, balanced diet of the Word of God, and to get you to pray for your good. Because we believe God's Word is powerful. Sometimes when you approach, because here's the thing. You know that whole philosophical idea that you never step in the same river twice? Well, you are never the same person coming back to a particular text. And you don't know how that text might, might minister to you differently based upon different things that are coming into your life, based upon different experiences, how you may encounter the Lord in different ways and how he might set you free or embolden you or, or comfort you in, in unique ways on this time around. We've got to prioritize the word. Next. I think that these themes give focus to our prayers. Think about it. How often do we feel like we don't really, we feel directionless in our prayers? And our prayers end up being grand acts and just, you know, selfishness. God bless me. Bless my life. Bless my work. Bless my kids. Bless my, you know, it's me, 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 me. Right? When you take this creation perspective, it helps you to broaden the scope of your prayer life. But it also helps you to to pray imaginatively. Imagine who you could become with this new creation dynamic at work in you. Imagine who your neighbors could become, what your neighborhood could be like. Pray that new creation nearer. Imagine what our church community could be like through prayer. Focus to our prayers. Next, this is an important one for our community. These, these themes in, in creation, they establish our anthropology. Now, that might sound like, uh, okay, whatever. It's super important. It's super important. These creation themes establish our anthropology. If you look beneath the surface of many of the raging hot-button issues of our day, what you will notice is that a particular anthropology is assumed to be true is taken in faith. 
There's no real moral ground or authority concerning humanity. Think about that. We're told that we just take blind leaps of faith as Christians. Well, where exactly do our secular neighbors get their framework? At the end of the day, not everything is see-through. At the bottom, there has to be some unexamined axiom, some presupposition on which they build the rest of their framework. Everything that people say about human life, human freedom, human sexuality, everything, you got to realize, is built upon a particular anthropology. We have been given an anthropology here. This, this text answers the big questions. What is a human being? Who am I? What is my purpose? How should I live? What should I do with my body? You know, there, there's a book called After Sexuality. And, and I'm making this point. Why? Not because it's my pet issue, but because it's, it's a pastoral issue. It's the, it's the world we have to live in, right? It's the world you live in. It's the stuff you're navigating every day. And by the way, we have a process and pray. Come through this afternoon. We'll talk about it more. There's a book called After Sexuality that makes the case that the whole concept of sexuality is a very modern construct. And the real question of the Bible is, what do I do with my body? What can I do with my body? Like you, you get these mentions of the body of Christ and how the body fits together. What do I do with my body? What can I do with my body? How should it be used? My tongue, my hands, my feet, my sexual organs. What do I do with my body? You cannot answer that question without an anthropology. And every Christian must examine, where do I get my anthropological commitments from? Am I deriving those anthropological commitments from secular frameworks or from the scriptures? The scriptures are not simplistic in their anthropology. You know there's a historic theological anthropology among Christians, right? You know it's a, it's a whole class in seminary, right? Before you make progress in making determinations about some of these hot-button issues, you need to ask yourself a question. Do you even have a, the fuzziest idea of what anthropology you're working from and what anthropology Christianity gives you in terms of resources for answering these questions? You can't, you simply cannot answer what is a human being and what does a human being do and what is the purpose and what is the telos, what is the goal of human life without anthropological commitments, a way of understanding humanity. You need to be self-aware and circumspect, okay? Okay, next, I'm coming to a close here. These themes remind us of our purpose regardless of our vocation or our circumstances. In other words, these texts demystify the Christian life and they bring a much-needed simplicity to what I must be doing, what I need, how I flourish, and all of these other questions. Like, how do, what do you need to flourish? You know, all I need is two cars and um, I need to have a house and I'm gonna need, a, I'm gonna need, you know, six figures, higher six figures though. Like, like you know how we just manufacture, like, like what we need is so plastic. Look at the simplicity of these texts. Like, what do you need? And, and and oftentimes when you get 
like you hit a road bump in your career, you feel like you've lost your purpose. This happens for pastors all the time. I got pastor friends who are, you know, moving on from ministry to do other things and they feel aimless and purposeless right now. But here's the beauty of a big cosmic framework that has a doctrine of creation is that no matter what you do, you can do it for the glory of God. And that's what the text is telling you. If you're sweeping floors at 7-Eleven, it's filled with dignity and goodness. Because you know what? You know what that sounds like? Cleaning up messes after other people? Making a place habitable for others? You know who that sounds like? Sounds like God to me. No matter what your vocation, whether you are, whether you are in the throes of raising children who are resistant to your instruction who don't want to follow your good direction. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you know of any other parental figure who's trying to raise stubborn children into goodness and flourishing? Sounds like God to me. Do you see? It don't matter what you pick. Me and Joel, we play this game where he tries to stump me. He tries to pick a vocation that does not image God, and I'm undefeated. I just want to let that be known, all right? No, but it takes some creative theologizing to understand the dignity that all of it is, is purposeful and meaningful. Just do it unto the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're doing big, important stuff according to the world. This text reminds us that the Bible does not begin with Genesis 3. The Bible does not begin with the fall. That's not where we begin. We begin with goodness, integrity, wholeness in the creation and therefore we ought to be the kind of people who doesn't just see the mess that has been made of creation due to the curse but sees the potential and the possibility because of the new creation intentions of the lord we ought to be the kind of people that can recognize common grace and resource the goodness wherever it is all truth is god's truth we have said that and all goodness is god's goodness and all beauty points us to the one who is beautiful So we ought to be the kind of people that remembers. You don't begin with Genesis 3. There was glory prior to. A glory that was lost and surrendered. But a glory reclaimed in Jesus Christ. And a glorious destination to which we're headed. That got to be part of the conversation. In helping people to understand a Christian framework. If you begin with Genesis 3, you're betraying the story. Finally, in line with Elder Chris's prayer... This text teaches us to view God as giver, as giver. The deepest shaping influence on your spirituality, no matter who you are, is what you perceive God to be like. What do you think God is like? How do you think God treats you? What do you think are his attributes? What does he do when you fail? What does he do when you succeed? What's he up to in your life? What is God about when you're suffering? What is God doing when you're praying? Do you see this incredible picture in this text? God is framed up as the generous giver of gifts. It's like God is giddy to see human. He's like, he creates this wonderland of goodness. And then he's like, now I'm going to make my image bearer to enjoy it, to delight in it, to flourish in it, to cultivate it. That's what God wanted. And that's what God wants. He wants our delight. He is good. It's not, it's not just trite. God is good all the time. Thank you very much.
Let's keep these themes in mind and remember our great salvation and take hope in the new creation direction that God is taking us toward. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.